I know people who never asked for a divorce and are so embarrassed that that's now on their resume. And then they said, you know what? I know I can now reach out to people who are facing such a thing or going through such a thing or have been through such a thing. And I can talk to them and tell them about how there's meaning and hope, even in the worst of circumstances. Jeremiah didn't ask for the task that was given to him, but he used it to God's glory. And sometimes God's message that he wants us to unleash on the world may not be a message that sounds so great on the front end. But God's message always ends great on the final end. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. We're in Jeremiah. You know that not every day in the life of a Christian is rosy and peachy. And do you want to re-emphasize that that's true? Read Jeremiah. He's called the weeping prophet. If you think to yourself, why why did he call himself that? Uh, No. You know, you don't always get to choose what your role in life is going to be when the master has need of you. And it may be that your calling in life isn't what you thought it would be. But it's amazing how if you're willing to embrace what God is trying to do with you, you can be used in ways you never thought possible. And God can have a vessel of honor to be used in ways you would never have imagined. I can think of people, and names are coming to my mind right now, people in my life, who ended up having ministries They wouldn't have called it that. They wouldn't have thought of it as that. But their life circumstances didn't go the way they wanted them to go. But because of what happened, they were able to minister to people. I know people who had cancer, never wanted it, never asked for it, prayed that God would take it away, and God didn't. So what did they do? They learned as much as they could about what they had, and they began to work with other people who were going through the same thing. I know people who had addictions in their life, overcome by the power of Christ, and then decided it must be the case that if I know what it's like to overcome such a thing, as embarrassing as it is to think about, I'm going to let that reputation continue, not as one who is still doing it, but as one who has overcome it. I'm going to make that my ministry. I know people who never asked for a divorce and are so embarrassed that that's now on their resume. And then they said, you know what? I know I can now reach out to people who are facing such a thing or going through such a thing or have been through such a thing. And I can talk to them and tell them about how there's meaning and hope, even in the worst of circumstances. Jeremiah didn't ask for the task that was given to him, but he used it to God's glory. And sometimes God's message that he wants us to unleash on the world may not be a message that sounds so great on the front end, but God's message always ends great on the final end. And that's where I want to go tonight. Assyria was dominating the Middle East for 150 years. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the 7th century BC, 
the empire begins to crumble, which leaves Babylon as the major world leader. Now, Egypt didn't like that, and there was some battle between Babylon and Egypt trying to figure out who's going to be the next major world leader. And during this time, for several decades, little Judah struggles to figure out their place in the world. Josiah has been leading some reforms, and that's had some success to get the people to go back to Yahweh. But there's also this thing that happens anytime. Uh, think about the the um, the Baltic states, for example, that were under sort of oppressive rule, and then they weren't. What happens? Well, you're so used to being under oppressive rule, you want to talk about what it's like to be free, but not know what that means. And that was going on with Judah. What does it mean to no longer be under Assyrian rule? We'll be under Yahweh's rule. Yeah, but what does that mean? Because I know what it looks like to be under oppressive rule and to have might all around you. And they were struggling to figure out what to do with that. Enter Jeremiah into this topsy-turvy world of economic, social, and political upheaval. Jeremiah had a priestly background. And because of his background as a, with a priestly family, he knew what it meant to be loyal to the covenant of God. And he knew that he saw the exact opposite of that on his frequent visits to Jerusalem. He lived just outside of it. And it repulsed him. Now, I want you to listen to the characteristics I'm describing of Jeremiah, because I want to ask you who it reminds you of. He has a background as a priest for God. He knows what covenant loyalty should be. And when he visits Jerusalem, his stomach is turned. So he exposes the sins of his culture with vivid preaching and with very stark illustrations. He warns the people of disaster that's coming. And right in the middle of it is the temple itself. God's house where he lives may not be there anymore. And he weeps at the thought of Babylon destroying God's house because God's people have called the fires of heaven down on themselves. And so he repeatedly calls for repentance. He tells the people of Jerusalem to get right church and let's go home. He shows great courage and he experiences incredible unpopularity as a result. He has death threats, physical beatings, a near fatal imprisonment in a slimy pit. After Josiah dies, who Jeremiah was fond of, comes a series of kings who can't stand Jeremiah's guts. Jehoiakim burns a scroll in Jeremiah's face. You know, okay, that that sounds bad. Well, let me make it worse. It was 23 years worth of Jeremiah's preaching. Has anybody ever lost something you were working on on a hard drive? Anybody ever, I don't know, lost like half your master's dissertation? I just, you know, I've heard of that happening to someone. Um, Because you know how to work computers. 23 years of his preaching burned up. The people refused to listen. 
So Jeremiah pours forth his anger, his protest, his bouts of depression because of what he's facing, his questions and his anxieties and his message. And it's all written down and it's all preserved. It's preserved by his faithful scribe, Baruch. In fact, Baruch even rewrites every word of the burned scroll from scratch. Jeremiah witnesses the besiegement of Jerusalem from the inside. In 588 and 587, he watches as the city is destroyed. Wouldn't you know it? Babylon, who takes over, sets Jeremiah free. But then he gets taken captive by some of his own people who are running the other way, fleeing to Egypt against Jeremiah's advice. And the weeping prophet who spent his life testifying against the city of Jerusalem, who watches his own words literally go up in flames, who watches his city get taken over, who's released by the enemy and then taken prisoner by his own people, dies in Egypt. Okay, I want to say some of that again. Priestly background who knows what the covenant is, goes to Jerusalem and sees it's gone the wrong direction, testifies against it, receives death threats because of it, rejected by his own people. Reminds me of someone. His word pictures are something to behold. We lose some of it because we don't speak Hebrew but I think you can still pick up some of it in the English. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there with me and see how his poetry conjures up mental images. He speaks of a bride. He speaks of first fruits. He speaks of springs and cisterns, lions and vines and soaps. I was going to say lions and vines and bears. I know you were thinking it. Camels and donkeys. Listen to the language of Jeremiah 2. Start in verse 1. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Verse 5, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless and became worthless? They didn't say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, You defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods? 
even though they're not gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Go down to verse 20. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said I will not serve. On every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a harlot. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lyre and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is before me. How can you say I am not unclean? I've not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her weary, uh, weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you say it is hopeless for I have led foreigners, and after them I will go. He's trying to get them to see what's happened. So he draws from stuff in their own life, things they would see every day, and compares them in ways that are meant to make them recognize their shame. Can you think of someone else who comes to your mind, who use vivid word pictures to declare to Jerusalem, Recognize your shame. And if words don't do it, what about actions? There's a lot of drama in the book of Jeremiah. For example, he purchased a field in Jeremiah 32. It must have cost some money. I don't know how much money he had. But he spends money to buy a field as a way of recognizing what it means to have faith. In Jeremiah 19... He takes a clay pot and he smashes it outside the city in the presence of the political leaders, announcing a message to them. And that takes courage. In Jeremiah 13, he buys a new linen sash. Very nice. Got it on Amazon one day delivery. But he buries it until it's useless and worthless to tell, to tell Jerusalem, this is what you've become. He puts an ox yoke on his shoulders in chapter 27. And he finds out there's a conference going on, an international conference. And he bursts into the conference. And he tells the leaders of all the other nations to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Because God has raised him up for this moment. 
He uses strong word pictures, and then he does dramatic actions to announce to Jerusalem just what's going on. He has a couple of key prophetic concerns, and these show up in a lot of the prophets. God is sovereign in control of world history. God's in charge. Number two, God demands justice and even economics, even social actions, even politics matter to God. You know that the social and the religious and the economic and the political intermingle in every culture, in every generation. And the reason why God cares about that is because people get crushed by those decisions. And people matter to God. It's never easy. Jeremiah stands up against the social and political forces of his day. And that's never easy. When you do that, you will be hated. In fact, you will be hated. If you do it right, you'll be hated by everyone. I'm not sure if we always realize that, but it's true. That's why it takes so much courage. Because in Jeremiah's day and in Jesus's day, standing up to what's going on in your culture involves telling non-believers they need to think about people and they look at you and say, who do you think you are? But even before that, it means telling believers to change their ways. When Jesus and Jeremiah wade into dealing with culture, they're hated by insiders first and more often than outsiders. Not an easy thing to do. And that's because of the third point the prophets talk about. Outward religion without ethical transformation is something God can't stand. Practical obedience far outweighs all the other things that we often put in its place. This is a great line from a book I was reading. It's better if you read it because it's spelled differently, but you'll catch it. Sacred rights, R-I-T-E-S, do not compensate for social wrongs. When God describes himself in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9 or chapter 22, he describes himself as a God of righteousness and justice and faithfulness and love. And it turns out that if you demand righteousness and justice and faithfulness and love, you're going to step on everybody's toes. The last thing I see that's really interesting in the prophets and in Jeremiah is that God calls Israel his firstborn son. Now, I want to stop there for a second. I hadn't thought about this until I was preparing for this lesson. You don't call someone your firstborn son unless you intend to have more. Remember what God said to Abraham? I'm going to make you my nation so that through you, I will be able to bless what? The whole world. And the book of Hebrews says that Christ, the firstborn son, did what God called him to do so that he could lead, quote, many sons 
to glory. And it's why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. God wanted Israel, the firstborn son, to live up to the covenant so that God could bring many sons to glory, which means he wanted Israel to live so faithful that God's spirit would flood the earth and other nations could be blessed because of what he was doing through them. Where do I see Jesus and the gospel in the book of Jeremiah? Well, first, Jesus looks like Jeremiah. Jesus is our high priest. He knows what it means to have covenant loyalty. And when he goes to Jerusalem and he sees how they're acting, his stomach turns. He sounds like Jeremiah. He uses word pictures called parables and dramatic actions. Dramatic actions like telling the tree to no longer grow any more fruit. Like miracles. And the most dramatic, going to the cross himself. He preaches like Jeremiah. He says, there is no other God but Yahweh, he and he alone. To Satan himself, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. He says, the ethics of the kingdom are non-negotiable. That what God calls you to be and to do is a requirement. That we ought to live moral, righteous, ethical lives in this world. He even calls pagans to account. Do you remember when he tells the king, you have no right to be with the one you're with. He says, I stand by the way God calls us to live. And then he spends most of his ire dealing with apostles who don't get it and Pharisees who don't want it. And he's hated by everybody. The promise to make a new covenant is described in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. And it's one of the most beautiful things that God allowed a weeping prophet to share. I mean, here's Jeremiah who's realizing these people are not listening. They're never going to get right. God's going to bring his judgment. I'm going to watch my own people get destroyed. And not just that. If the Lord allowed him to see the end of the story, we're not told if he knew beforehand, but if he was able to see the end of the story, you could add not only that, when the enemy sets me free, my own people will keep me captive. So God says, all right, Jeremiah, write this one down. In Jeremiah 17, verse 1, he says, the sins, the sins of my people are written and etched in their hearts like when you etch into flint. So what am I going to do? Well, you could say, so they're corrupt and terrible. I'm going to get rid of them. What he says is, in Jeremiah 31, one day I am going to write my law on their inward parts. Now, that sounds kind of weird unless you remember the story of the Ten Commandments. I know we've seen the movie and Charlton Heston writes the Ten Commandments. But in the original, if you remember, because it happened twice, of course, the intention was for God to write the commandments. And the idea here is that when it's up to you, what ends up happening is you go wrong. My sheep go astray. I'm not going to be giving you commands anymore that you have to memorize and recite and learn and obey and, and, and write them all upon your heart. I'm going to go one further. I am going to write my law on your inward parts. 
You say your hearts are hard. You say your hearts become tablets of stone. Then I will use even that as the stones upon which I'll write my law. Look how much God loves his people. Now, the only way that can work for God to be just is for someone to come and keep covenant with God as the representative of humanity. And so God himself gives up the clothing of heaven. He comes to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and he lives the covenant flawless. And thus God can keep covenant with humanity because humanity keeps covenant with God. And then he realizes, of course, Jesus realizes that this can't just me be doing all the things the law says. I've also got to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, which means I have to die and my death will cover the sins of the whole world. And this is interesting to me. In Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 29, Jeremiah describes this as drinking the bitter cup. And Jesus, who looks like Jeremiah and preaches like Jeremiah and is treated like Jeremiah, is there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you can hear him crying out to God, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I believe he drinks the cup of wrath He lives the covenant life, he drinks the cup of wrath, and he dies on our behalf so that now God can look at Christ and say, this is what it means to keep covenant with me. And now, when Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, God writes his law on our inward parts, and what makes us right with God is not how well I do, What makes me right with God is how well he's done. The reason why God is able to say to us, good and faithful servant, is because we're writing the coattails of the only one who is. There is none righteous, no, not one. And yet because of Christ, there is a righteousness apart from law by which every one of us receive that which we do not deserve. And that God sees us not in our sin, but in our Savior. I see the gospel in Jeremiah. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at NathanGuy.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.